let's read the word of Almighty God. I'm going to read to you John 11, 55 to 12, 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one, to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of, uh, and Lazarus <clears throat> was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, the, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Pray with me, friends. Lord, I believe that there is tremendous beauty in this text today. I pray with all my heart that you will work around me by the power of your Holy Spirit and your word. Speak to your people. Use me, repair whatever weaknesses are there, that we might hear your word and respond, because I, I just know there's beauty and glory here, and I pray that we'll see it. Draw people closer to yourself, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to talk to you today about a war. Every human being is involved, whether they realize it or not, it's a war that does not use visible weapons. It's a war that can happen without armies or physical injury. I'm talking here about a war of worship. Inside the heart of every human being is a raging battle. Everybody worships somebody. And there's nothing more important in anyone's life than whether or not they end up getting worship right. Listen to me carefully. You will either worship the Lord or you will worship something infinitely less. You may worship somebody else. You may worship yourself. Or 
you will actually worship the God who made you and to whom you owe your very soul. Look at the world around you. Look at our city. People worship food and drink. Some worship sports. Many bow down to pleasures. Some are dominated by the love of money. Many, very many, are willing to give their all to selfish autonomy, rejecting the Lord in favor of self-determination, self-rule, and self-destruction. But there are some who, by the grace of God, have found that there is only one way for the human soul to be truly satisfied. There are some who have understood that our lives find their greatest fulfillment when we yield to, glorify, and worship the Lord God who created us and who rewards us with himself when we seek him. I pray that you are among those who have learned that the highest good for any human being is the true worship of the Lord. Today we'll find five points in a passage that shows us the war of worship taking place. Some people in our account turn away from God to worship self. But we'll see at least one person who worships the Lord Jesus in a glorious way, and we'll learn from her act of worship. Ready to go? Point number one. Focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Look at 1155 to 57. Now the pastor of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. When last we left the scene, Jesus had departed from Bethany. He had retired to a location bordering the wilderness about a dozen miles from Jerusalem. But now the time for the celebration of the Passover feast is at hand. And people from all over Israel are traveling to Jerusalem to prepare for this sacred festival. As the crowds swell, people are abuzz with conversation about Jesus. As we saw back in chapter 7, some people wonder if Jesus will come to the feast because he knows full well that the religious leaders are seeking his life. They want people to tell. They want people to have him arrested. Some do expect him to show Some expect he won't. Now, this is transitional, but before we move to the main passage for today, I actually want us to pause, family. With the stage set, I want us to learn something from the buzz of conversation. This will help you. Some people want Jesus arrested. Some likely want him to step forward and be king. People, that we can agree on this, are talking about Jesus. Now, today, 
Would you guys agree with me? There are many different debates that people, including Christians, get into. Is that true? People love to argue about politics and morality, don't they? Now, can I offer a word of counsel for us all here? I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, so take this for what it is. Focus people on Jesus. As you engage the world around you with conversation, ask yourself, is your conversation making people think about Jesus? Are you focusing people on moral standards or a marvelous Savior? See, Jesus is magnificent. Jesus is God in the flesh who came and proved the love of God for everybody who will come to him. Jesus is our supreme treasure, our greatest reward, our highest purpose. In our conversation with the lost, are these points coming out clearly? When we focus people on Jesus, what we'll find is that worship always takes place. People will either surrender and worship the Savior, or they will rebel and worship self. And we're going to see those things happen as we turn to chapter 12. Point number two, which could have four subpoints if you're that kind of person. Point number two, worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Look at 12, 1 through 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. And wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's six days before the Passover. Little examination of the timeline will tell us that John is placing our focus on the Saturday evening before Palm Sunday. I would suggest perhaps this is the first of April, A.D. 30. Some people would say it is a little later in April, or a little, little at the end of March, AD 33. And Jesus has come to Bethany. It's a town that's a couple miles away from Jerusalem. And that was the town in which he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, you guys know that in Jesus' day, the Sabbath was Saturday, right? No work can be performed on the Sabbath, but the celebration ends at sunset. So what we see happening here is once the sun went down, a late dinner party takes place. And the dinner was held in Jesus' honor. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary were present. Martha was helping serve, which is her nature. Matthew and Mark tell us this was an event that took place in a home of a guy named Simon the leper. Uh, Simon must be a man whom Christ healed from leprosy and lived in the same town. So I think we could say 
These friends had ample reason to express appreciation to Jesus with a meal. Well, while the dinner party itself was a sweet kindness, something occurred during the meal that was truly breathtaking. While the dinner guests were reclined around the low table, Mary entered, and she was carrying a delicate alabaster jar with a valuable perfume. If you combine all four gospel accounts, uh, you'll see that in an act of true giving, true humility, true worship, Mary broke open the top of this jar and poured its precious contents over the head, the body, and the feet of Jesus. Mary then further humbled herself by wiping the excess perfume from the Savior's feet with her own hair. And John simply tells us the fragrance of that perfume filled the room. What Mary did in this scene was a beautiful thing. Matthew tells us that Jesus said of Mary's action, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In a war over worship in the human heart, Mary worshipped Jesus. What does it mean to worship? We need to know that. The literal meaning of the word most often translated worship in the Old Testament is to bow down with one's face to the ground. To prostrate oneself. That's what the word for worship means. In the New Testament, the Greek word has to do with bowing or kneeling toward something. As when a person might kneel to kiss the hem of a king's robe. But the picture in both is one of intentionally lowering yourself in subjection to a superior. Worship is performing acts of homage and submission in response to God's revelation of himself in accord with his holy word. And what Mary did fits worship perfectly. And what Mary did could be a pattern for us to follow as we who desire to worship Jesus choose to do so. As we worship the Savior, let us worship biblically, extravagantly, humbly, and fittingly. First, worship biblically. Mary had seen Jesus do things only God can do. She had heard him say things that only God can righteously say. She had understood him to be bringing to her the very words of God. She was, to the best of her ability, realizing that she was in the presence of the Son of God, of God in flesh. And in accord with everything Scripture promised of the Christ to come, Mary recognized Jesus to be the Savior. You know, in ancient times, mankind 
tried to redefine God based on our own imagination. And the result, of course, was the ugly pantheon of flawed, childish, cruel Greek or Roman deities. Sometimes man's imagination led to representing deity as an ox, as a goat, or as a gross depiction of a human body part. Without true revelation from God, mankind will always, absolutely always, fail to grasp the true glory and holy character of God. And many people in our culture today, they would tell you that they worship God, but if you ask them to define who God is or what God is like, you'll discover that they're worshiping a God of their own imagination. Little, just a rule of thumb. If you hear somebody saying, I like to think of God as, this is a person who is not about to worship the true God. Instead, it's a person who has imagined that God is like they are, just bigger and more powerful. In Psalm 50, verse 21 ends with, You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. If our worship is to be true worship, it has to be biblical. It's got to begin with a true depiction of the God you worship. We have no right to reshape God into our image and likeness. Instead, we have to seek to know the Lord who has revealed himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. And the good news is, the God who has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture is beautiful and worthy of worship. Hear these words about God from Psalm 145. Verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Verse 20 says, The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked he will destroy. In Psalm 145, God reveals to us a character of greatness, majesty, glory, graciousness, love, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, and righteousness. He also reveals himself to us as just. He destroys the wicked. In Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to Moses, he declares himself slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. In Psalm 63, verse 3 declares that the love of God is better than life itself. And verse 5 says that the Lord satisfies our souls as with the richest of foods. 
Psalm 1611 tells us there's life in God's presence and pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us God has proved his love for us by sending Jesus Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. To worship biblically is to worship this God. He's truly worth it. He's better than any picture you could ever come up with of a God. Don't you get that that's what idolatry is? When somebody gets the best picture they can make up of God and then tries to apply it, and they make something absolutely insane out of it. They bow down to bull statues because bulls are strong and God's strong, so that's my picture of God. And it's evil. To worship biblically is to be sure that you worship the true God. Quick quiz. How many gods are there? There's only one God. He's the holy and triune God revealed in Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Any denial of any of these persons or any denial of the oneness of God renders worship unbiblical. Thus, Jews and Muslims do not worship the same deity as Christians. Neither do Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. I'm not trying to be mean to them, but they do not worship our God Neither are those who define their deity as a woman or some other depiction. To worship biblically involves recognizing the true God as the true God presents himself to us in Scripture, seeing his worth and responding to him in accord with his commands and in agreement with his word. Worship biblically. But second, worship extravagantly. See, later in our passage, we're going to find out that the pound, actually about 12 ounces in our measure, of perfume that Mary poured out on Jesus is valued at a sum of 300 denarii. Now, real quick, how many of you could spot me 300 denarii right now? You don't really know, do you? Are we talking about just the coins? In that day, 300 denarii was a full year's wages for an average worker. Did you hear me? Imagine in a single moment of worship, willingly pouring out on Jesus an entire year's salary for your household. Add to the cost the simple fact that Jesus did not ask for perfume. This is not a massive donation to a building campaign he was running. This is not a feed the hungry outreach. You could not see the result of this. Once it was done, it was done. Mary simply gave something of tremendous worth to Jesus in order to express love and devotion to the Savior. And the only tangible result 
is the smell that would follow, that would fill the room. And you got a picture that that smell followed the Savior over the next week through the temple, through the lodgings of Pontius Pilate to the cross and to the tomb. What would it look like for you, dear Christian, to worship Jesus extravagantly? That's a question you should take time to think about. It might be financially costly. It might be something else. What would it look like for you to declare to Jesus that he has your very all, your very best, your deepest devotion? What might you do to express true, genuine commitment to your Lord? I promise you, it will impact how you spend your time and money. It will impact how you plan your days. It probably will ensure that you prioritize gathered worship. You might say to me, I don't have any money to give, Pastor. Believe me, I know what that feels like. But do you know what you have that you can give as a token of worship to the Savior? You can give yourself. Jesus is good. Jesus is loving. He's worthy of your all. Look to the Word of God. And ask God, how can I take my very life, every bit of me, and pour it out as an act of devotion? I want my life to be a fragrance that wafts through the world telling people, this is the Savior, look at Him. What would it look like for you to worship Jesus extravagantly? Third, worship humbly. Mary took down her hair in a public setting a thing that would have seemed scandalous to many people in her culture. Mary touched Jesus' feet, an act that many would reserve only for the lowliest slave in the household. Mary wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, demonstrating true, total humility in his presence. Nothing about Mary's action was intended to elevate her Nothing was intended to have her do things her way for her comfort as her own master. Well, I want it this way. That wasn't happening with Mary here. As you worship Jesus, realize you must be personally involved and humbly obedient. Worship is not about you demanding to get things your way. Amen? Worship's not about you watching somebody else be committed while you sit on the sidelines. Worship is you, in obedience to the revelation of God, freely, joyfully lowering yourself before the king so that you might exalt him. Worship is seeking your joy in the very act for which you were made glorifying your maker. It is deeply personal 
and humble. Fourth, worship fittingly. Worship fittingly. The action of Mary was fitting. It was right. She anointed Jesus the way one might anoint a king. Y'all know Jesus is God's promised king, right? Jesus will tell us in just a minute, this was fitting because it began the process of preparing his body for burial, which by the way, he'll be in a tomb in six days. Her worship was something that was appropriate to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And when we worship, we too should do what is fitting. You guys do understand, don't you, that there are actions that are inappropriate for any person to participate in? Those cannot be worship of Jesus. You understand that, right? If somebody tells you that a sinful action, an action forbidden by God in Scripture, if they say that can be worship of the Lord, they are not pleasing the Lord. But there are also acts that are appropriate for some parts of life, but which could not be part of formal worship. For example, learning to do mind-blowing tricks on a skateboard is fine. I might try. But incorporating those into the service for gathered worship might be less than fitting, wouldn't you say? God in God's word tells us about formal worship and he wants his people to do what? He wants us to sing. He wants us to pray. He wants us to read the word and to listen to the preached word and to participate in the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper. He wants us to fellowship and encourage each other and to do so appropriately because they're all appropriate to God's position as our Lord and our Father, and they're all appropriate to our position as the subjects of God, the children of God. It is fitting that we sing of God's glory with all of our might. It is fitting that we pray for God's blessing. It is fitting that we sit under the preached word, receive it with joy, respond to it in obedience. It is fitting, according to God's commands, that we worship with joy and reverence in a way that's orderly and not chaotic. In your personal life, in your private life, you also worship the Lord in any action you perform as an act of obedience to God in accord with His holy word and will. But any act that you wish to call worship needs to be fitting It should say something about the truth of the glory of Jesus and his priority. It should be in accord with the word of God and not in violation of the commands of God. Whether it's inside the gathering, whether it's outside the gathering, we want to worship fittingly. So Mary worshiped Jesus. Her act was biblical. It was extravagant. It was humble. It was fitting. And we want to do the same in all of our lives for the glory of God and the joy of our souls. No, we do. (laughs) Let's go forward, though. That was like a whole sermon inside a sermon. But let's get the rest done. Point number three. 
Watch out for sinful selfishness. Watch out for sinful selfishness. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. There's a war for worship. Some worship the Lord. Some worship themselves. And those who worship self hate it when they see a believer give their all to Jesus. Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve disciples. But Judas never loved or truly believed in Jesus. Judas was a thief, greedy, and selfish. Judas followed Jesus, not for Jesus, but for what Judas might get out of Jesus. And Judas is the one who would, in a very short while, betray Jesus by striking a deal with the religious leaders to hand him over to them. Of course, neither John nor the other disciples understood this about Judas at the time. Only Jesus saw through the disguise of Judas. Only Jesus saw that Judas was worshiping self and not God. And Judas, when he saw the extravagance of Mary's act of worship, he couldn't contain himself. That was a year's salary being poured over the body of Jesus. Wouldn't that bug you? I remember a time Mitzi and I were at a fancy schmancy restaurant and something on the list on the menu caught her eye because there was a bottle of wine on the menu selling for over $30,000. I know a person who worked at a fancy schmancy restaurant here in Vegas who took that bottle of wine to a table who took a $30,000 bottle of wine to a table and served it to a man who was eating by himself. He sa- I asked him, did you ask him if he was worth it? He goes, I did. He said, what did the man say? He goes, it's not really that much better than other wine, but I'm probably the only one drinking wine like this tonight. That's the worship of self, by the way. And you feel, oh my goodness, that's wasteful. But I guess we can say it was extravagance. Mary poured a year's wages over the body of Jesus. And that was good. As much as that bottle of wine makes you uncomfortable, what Mary did was good. That was 300 denarii from which Judas could could have lined his pocket. It seemed ridiculous to Judas. He voiced his frustration. Matthew and Mark let us know that Judas' gripes caught on and the other disciples complained too. But isn't it funny that Judas found a way to justify his greed by pretending he cared about the needs of the poor? That is the way of the selfish, by the way. The one who worships self wants to look good and giving and sincere. Judas didn't just want to say, hey, I want that money. So Judas tries to make Mary look bad for giving Jesus her very best. 
Here's the point for you and me. Watch out for sinful selfishness. Because every one of us was at one time lost and opposed to God. Because we still battle our flesh. We're at risk of being like Judas here. Sometimes we don't want to give Jesus our all. Sometimes we fear going too far in our worship of the Savior. Sometimes, parents, we want to not let our kids make a self-sacrificial decision that would glorify God because we don't want them to potentially hurt. Sometimes we become bitter toward people who love the Lord more freely and extravagantly than we're comfortable with doing. And I only know one way to battle this, folks. Listen to these words. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. Worship him for, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's the end of Revelation 4. How do you guard against selfishness? You look to the Lord. You learn to love the Lord. You take part in genuine worship. As we said, worship Jesus biblically, extravagantly, humbly, fittingly. And as you do that, when you do that, you'll see that the Lord helps you to kill the impulse of self-worship that's still present in your flesh. You will eagerly cast your own crowns at his feet as you rejoice in his overwhelming glory. Point four. You guys still hanging in there? Glorify Jesus while there's time. Point four, glorify Jesus while there's still time. Seven and eight say, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus rebukes Judas. And this one must have stung. The other murmuring disciples get it too. Jesus commands them to leave Mary alone because what she has done is beautiful. What she's done is righteous worship. What she has done is something Jesus gladly receives from her. Judas pretended he would have sold that perfume and given the money to help the poor, but Jesus knew better. But rather than than exposing Judas to the 11th, you're a thief and you know better, Jesus offered a different line of thought. He said there's always going to be time to help the poor. That opportunity is not going away so long as this world is still infected by sin and sorrow. Now Jesus is not opposing helping the poor. He's pro-help the poor. But Mary will not always have the opportunity to show such a personal, humble commitment to Jesus. 
But why was the opportunity limited? I'm not even sure that Mary really understood the significance of what she did. Her anointing was fitting, though, because it was very soon to be time for Jesus to die and be buried. Jesus was walking to the cross. And though Jesus will, in fact, come out of the grave on the third day, he only walks the earth with his disciples for 40 days after that time. Mary's act of worship was sovereignly prompted by God to be the perfect sign of what was about to come. And if Mary had chosen to save the perfume for another week, she would have missed her chance. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that man is destined once to die, then to face judgment. Do you understand that every one of you sitting here has a limited lifespan in front of you? We don't know how many days we're going to live. We don't know when God will call us home. And the lesson that we want to learn from the words of Jesus right here is that we too should glorify Jesus while we have time. Worship Jesus today. Surrender to Jesus today. Love Jesus today. Because nobody guarantees you tomorrow. Point number five. Endure persecution. Endure persecution. Verses 9 to 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. As you can tell, this is another transitional thought. The scene is fading out. And we see that a large crowd of people were coming to the place in Bethany where the dinner party was taking place. They wanted to see Jesus. They were fascinated to talk with the resurrected Lazarus. Wouldn't you have had some questions for Lazarus if you had a chance? But the religious leaders, they were becoming more and more dangerous. They wanted to keep their power They would not let the reputation of Jesus and his miracles get in their way. They had already decided because Jesus was gaining so much popularity, they wanted to have Jesus killed. And they have no problem deciding that, hey, if Lazarus points people to Jesus, let's kill him too. Even when we are faithfully worshiping our Lord, even when we are finding soul satisfaction in God's glory. you got to understand, that does not guarantee you an easy life. Some people worship God. Some worship themselves and their desires. Those who only want to glorify self will always oppose those who want to glorify God. Don't be surprised then when those who follow Jesus have to endure persecution. Jesus warned us, a world that hates him will hate those who follow him too. You guys know how the world speaks, right? As we seek to honor God, what does the world say about us? 
They call us hateful for not agreeing with their evil practices. They call us backward for not believing in the myth of spontaneous evolution. They call us evil for ever saying that anything could be evil. They want to take our voice out of the public square. They label any objection to godlessness as hate speech. What do we do? We endure. That's what the church has done for two millennia before today, and that is what the church will do until the Savior comes back. We will understand there's a war for worship going on. We will battle against sinful selfishness. We will seek to focus conversations on Jesus. We will, no matter what, worship Jesus. We will worship Jesus even when the world hates us for doing it. We'll worship Jesus as long as he gives us breath. We'll worship Jesus biblically, extravagantly, humbly, and fittingly. And we will find joy in worshiping our Savior. And as I close, I know that some who hear my voice have not yet decided about Jesus. Let me remind you, there is a war for your heart's worship. There's a war for worship in your heart. You are either a worshiper of Jesus or a worship of something infinitely less. Jesus is God who came to earth to bring people to himself. Jesus is good and glorious. Jesus welcomes into the family of God any person who will come to him in faith. Turning to Jesus means that you willingly surrender your life to him as you entrust your soul to his care. You need Jesus. You need God's mercy. Why not turn from self and trust Jesus today? Let's pray together, friends. Lord God, as we hear your word, we've heard the challenge to worship. I pray, God, that you will, in fact, have the victory in the war for worship in every heart in this room. We know, Lord, that you will accomplish your will for your glory. We know that you will prove to be King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray that you'll be the king in our hearts. Teach us to worship. You are right that we might have the joy of magnifying your name. And teach us to see that that is the greatest joy that we could ever have. Save souls, God. Build your church. Show your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.